Good morning. Welcome to Lifestone Church. Let's all sing together. It's beginning to look a lot like Chris. Well, I really do appreciate you guys not going, hey, it's snowy, um, you know, uh, to come and to gather and to be encouraged and to celebrate together. Uh, we love doing that here at Lifestone. And so thank you for being here. If you're new here this morning, we hope that you uh, stop by the new here um, area in the lobby and, and just got a gift to show you that we uh, appreciate you being here, a little information about us. And something else we've got, we get a lot of requests for these um, stickers for your car, Lifestone stickers for your car. See, that's what we got in the first service too. People are like, yes, finally. Um, and so here's the deal. I'm going to make a deal with you. They're free. Okay, that's my deal. Um, <laughs> they are free. I, I think it's great that, that people know we're here. Uh, we just encourage you, if you do take one, to please use it. Put it, put it on your car. Uh, and, and we just want to let people know. Not We're not trying to celebrate Lifestone, but we're trying to point them somewhere that is sharing truth of who Jesus is and setting people free. And that's kind of what our whole series is about as we're in, the, in week two of a series we've called Jesus Without Religion. And that kind of sums up what our church is about. Uh, we recently have been kind of using this phrase more, and so we thought we'd do a whole series based on this. And we couldn't think of a better book as, as Pastor Nate and I uh, were, were planning this and discussing kind of what the messages would be, and he suggested us going through the book of Colossians. And it is a powerful picture of, uh, of what, what this is, of Jesus without religion. And, and he's dealing with this group that is getting sucked into religion. They heard the good news. They said yes to Jesus. Their lives are transformed. The fruit that God says is going to happen in our lives when we say yes to Jesus and the Spirit lives in us is coming out. But, dun, 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 then people from the outside are going, oh, yeah, yeah, this Jesus thing is great, it's wonderful, but we got a better version. We've got some more to add to it to, to kind of improve it. And, and Paul just knows that, that what that actually does is get people back into the bondage of religion and, and just kind of nullifies what the good news, what the gospel is all about. And today, I'm so excited because we're in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's in Colossians, the first chapter. It starts in verse 15, and we're just going to finish out the chapter. But this chapter gives one of the most beautiful, compelling pictures of who Jesus really is. And so I'm going to pray this morning, and we're going to jump into this message. God, we love you. And God, we thank you for this beautiful weather. Um, we need moisture. We, we, we celebrate just the diversity uh, of, of your creation. And I uh, thank you for gathering us here this morning together. I pray you would open up our hearts and our minds to your truth and that it would deeply impact how we live, how we think, uh, everything about our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, this, uh, this picture of Jesus is so important because... When you get Jesus wrong, everything else is messed up. When you get Jesus wrong, you view your life wrong. When you get Jesus wrong, you view eternity wrong. You view heaven wrong. Uh, when you get Jesus wrong, you view what religion is, and, and you, you embrace religion often in your life. You view God wrong. Like, getting Jesus right is such a big deal. And this morning... 
when you're encouraged by the description and, and, and this beautiful outline of, of what Paul shares with us um, about who Jesus is, you're going to be super encouraged by the big idea in your program, and it's this, that Christ lives in you. And, and, and that, see, I want a better reaction. Um, but honestly, like I grew up in church, and I'm like, yes, Christ lives in you. That's beautiful. And my Sunday school teacher would have a beautiful little flanograph sharing with me a Sunday school story about how Christ lives in me. And I'd go, when's lunch? Um, that's not what I want this morning, okay? I, I want you to see this picture of Jesus that is so big that, that we cannot, our, our words come way, they come up way too short. I want you to think about, that not when you go through the drive-thru, don't biggie size, but when you think of Jesus, always biggie size. Always, whenever you're thinking of Jesus, think as big as I can think of Jesus, it comes short of who he really is. And that's why we, we God, in, in, in giving us his word and descriptions of who Jesus is, it's awesome and it's encouraging, but in some ways, it just isn't even the whole complete picture because we can't fathom God. And some people often, when they try to understand and put God in a box, that's the very problem that we find ourselves getting into. Think of the attributes of God that we are given in his word. We find a God who is all-knowing. Try to wrap your brain around a being who knows everything there is to know. You'll get stumped in just trying to figure out what there is to know. <laughs> you know, you, like, okay, the, the temperature of a, you know, star that's a billion years away of the, I mean, like, just knowledge, like, just trying to think the amount of knowable things that alone will kind of just make you go, I just, I, yeah, let's go to lunch. I, yeah. he, he knows all things. He is all powerful. His power is limitless. That's what I do. I don't know. I just sit there in silence and go, and how does the Bible begin? That God out of nothing speaks all that we know into creation. That's how powerful he is. And, 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 and I just mentioned a couple things. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. Um, he's everywhere present. Try, try to think about that for a second. God is everywhere present. He's everywhere at the same time. I don't know. I, my words come up short. My brain starts to short-circuit, and I go, I can't really wrap my brain around that. But then what we'll do is we'll take God and how he's revealed himself and go, wait a minute, but you couldn't be this or you couldn't be that, and we limit him. And what we know about God as he's revealed himself in his word, uh, I love, I, I shared with the first service that I had uh, in uh, undergrad, I, I got a religious degree, and um, I'll never forget my Old Testament professor, Dr. Radcliffe. She was this brilliant professor. She stood about this tall, um, and she, you were lucky to get a C out of that class, like the top students. 
And, uh, I, I, but I love something that really stuck out to me as she said, the entire Old Testament can be summed up in this. And I was like, that's my speed. That's how, that's what I need to know. Um, and she said, there's one God. There is God. He is. That's one of his greatest declarations that he is just self-existent and that there's just one God. And so the whole Old Testament, we get this picture that there's one God, but it's, God is so huge, we can't begin to describe him or understand him. And then, though, we get this revelation that he's bigger than what we try to constrain him to be within our own human limitations. And so he reveals himself in three persons, but yet he's one being and one God. And we can't even come up with illustrations that explain that. Why? Because we're dealing with an infinite God. And we, we approach him with questions like, well, well, where did God come from? And we have to back up and go, wait a minute. He made where? So we can't ask that question, can't apply to him because he, wait a minute. But when was God born? Oh, wait, he made when? He stands outside of space and time that we're so constrained with. And we ask and I don't mean to mock this. I think I've asked these questions too, but silly questions like, how can God pray to himself in the garden? And, and I don't mean to simplify that. I know we're challenging ourselves with that question, but what, what we're not realizing is what we're doing is limiting God to human expectations and parameters and putting him in our box. This is God. And he has revealed himself in this incredibly complex way. And all, all the way in the beginning of his revelation in, in Genesis, he says that uh, he just spoke and creation happened, like I mentioned. Um, and and there's, there's pictures of, of talking about a God who is already more complex than just us as created individuals. Talks about the spirit of God hovering over the waters. Uh, when God says that he creates man in his own image, he says that he creates uh, he, he uses a plural, we create God, we create, we create man in our own image. It's how it is actually put to us that, that he's more complex than just some single personality, yet he's one God. And then we jump into the New Testament and we get this revelation of Jesus fully being God. And, and if you have any doubts about that or if you've just questioned that or wondered about that, I believe after studying this passage, and there's several others in the New Testament that you could study, but this one's very powerful, and I don't see how you can walk away and come up with a, with a, uh, a picture that's, that's smaller than Jesus being fully God. And so that's what he's declaring. But then it all comes to that point at the end, I'm going to give it away, that he, if, you're, if you trust in him, what happens is that he dwells in you. So the bigger you can get Jesus and not make him small and limited and, uh, you know, more like us and bring him down to our level, but make him bigger, the, the closer you're going to be to truth and the more exciting you should be about this God who gives you the ability, offers you this, rec uh, this reconciliation and this relationship to actually live in you. It's crazy. All right, Colossians 1. Um, the other thing I want to say about this, you're like, you, come on, let's get to the scripture. But before we get to this, a lot of scholars say that this is 
uh, a lot of this looks like something the early church used to remind themselves of who Jesus was. All right, we're going to do, we're going to admit, who here has to sing the ABCs in your head when you alphabetize things? Come on, me too. <laughs> I still have to do it. I'm like, I'm how old? And I'm still going, L-M-N-O-P, you know. So, but I love how God has wired our brains and stuff. And I think this was like a song or a poem that the early church shared to remind themselves of the character and the nature of Jesus because we're always going to tend to want to think that he's not as big as he is. And so as we look at this, Colossians 1, we're really going to read it. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. The picture that we get of God, especially in the Old Testament, is, is that God is spirit. Jesus talks about that when he talks to the woman at the well. And, and, and yet, what did God do? The description of Jesus is that he puts on human flesh. He leaves the splendor of heaven, puts on human flesh in order to accomplish God's will, to be the savior of the world, to sacrifice his life, and so um, to pay sin's debt. And, and so it says Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. We cannot see God, but now that we can see Jesus, we see God. Um, goes on, and, and he'll just go on and on and over and over to give us the descriptions to fight false teaching. And that's what Paul's doing. These Colossians had accepted Christianity, accepted who Jesus was, and Paul's sitting in prison. We talked about this last week. And there's outsiders coming in trying to distort what, who Jesus really is. And one of the biggest things that happens when people distort who Jesus is, is uh, they, they deny his deity. They deny that he's fully God. And, and, and when, God, when Jesus is less, then what he does isn't really enough. And then you know what you got to add to Jesus? Religion! You know what Paul and Jesus and God say about that? The theological term is this. <laughs> okay, write that down. You've got room in your notes. So uh, he goes on to describe biggie-sized Jesus. Do you have this picture of Jesus in your mind? He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. You got these people coming in trying to say he's, you know, an exalted angel, uh, elevated man, uh, whatever you have. No, no, no. Hear who Jesus is. He existed. He was before anything is created. And we have two things, basically, uh, in all of known knownness. I'm good with words. There's God and there's everything else. Everything else is created by God, and then there's God, who is self-existent, eternal. He's not constrained by time, so there's not, oh, when? There's not, well, he's been around a long time. No, he's been. He is, and that's how, why he declares himself that way. Um, I, here's a little plug for, for God questions that we just started um, last Sunday night. Um, you can jump in anytime. so come tonight at 6.30. Is that right, Nate? Six, see Good thing I asked, um, but, but dealing with some of these big concepts of the Christian faith and, and what the view is of, of God that, that, that we see clearly in Scripture, but here's a big passage of who, we, who Jesus is. 
that, that he is supreme all, over all creation. Who can be given that title? Who can be described as that? Only one being, God himself. And in the Old Testament, it's so clear, thousands of years of revelation of, of, of who God is to the Jewish people, and he's one God, and he's supreme over all creation. Verse 16, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we cannot see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. So as they have some people coming in saying, hey, he's this spiritual being, but he's a created spiritual being. So he's awesome and he's special. He's a super angel, but he's created. Because remember, there's only God, the uncreated, self-existent, eternal God. And everything else, including spiritual beings, including angels, including uh, demons who, you know, rebel, uh, like everything else, all of the physical creation that we might first think of, but then all realms and authorities and beings, everything else is, is just creation. And so uh, he makes that clear. Because I think what Paul is doing is going, okay, well, here's the follow-up question. And, and here's a possibility for you to think of Jesus a little lower than you should. And, and Paul's like, no, let me biggie-size him continually um, and give you no confusion by, by making this crystal clear. So in verse 17, he says, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. And this one really blew my mind. When, when you really think about this and study the implications of the fact that, okay, no, 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 let me help you understand. Jesus existed before anything else, before time, before matter, before spiritual beings, before anything else that was created, there was Jesus. Guess who's in that category? Just God, <laughs> the self-existent eternal God. And there's Jesus. And that's where we find him. And so you don't, because we're so constrained by time, we think, oh, yeah, yeah, long ago, and that was Jesus. And then, uh, he, and sometimes we think, well, God the Father, like, created all of creation. And then Jesus, he did this other thing um, and came to earth and died on a cross. But no, Paul's saying, no, he was creator God. But sometimes we think creator God, like, says, let there be stuff. And then he does all that. That's the short version. And then he kicks back on his his heavenly lazy boy recliner and says, man, this is awesome what I put into motion and, and it's just kind of going. But what this says is that everything that exists right now, like you, you only exist because Jesus is sustaining your existence at this very moment. Every atom that exists in all of creation is only existing continually right now because Jesus' power and authority allows it to continue to exist. What? Okay, I like that part. Um, verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything, the church, one of the most misused terms in all of Christianity. What is the church? It's not an organization. It's not a building. It's not a worship time. It is people. It's people who have accepted this gift of grace through Jesus. And they've been made right just through their faith in Christ. 
and that is who the church is. And I, and I catch myself too. I'm like, honey, I got to go clean the church tonight. Honey, I got to go, you know, and I'm like, oh, I mean the church building. Uh, cause, or, and that's not even maybe a great terminology. Where the church meets for now, just this building place. Um, or man, church was good this morning. A group of people were good this morning. That sounds kind of weird, right? So we kind of misuse that. But what it is, is it says the body of Christ, how he, uh, who he dwells in, goes back to that main concept that he dwells in uh, his church, which is people. It's us. Um, and so he goes on. We could spend a lot of time on that, but we want to get the nature of Jesus specifically. Verse 19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And so, so Paul is just kind of like, how can I frame it another way? How can I frame it another way? That, that it's not, well, Jesus, all right, Pastor Ben, man, that's a pretty big picture of Jesus. He's like, man, he's probably 80% God. Whew, that's, that's big. Let's go to lunch. Nope. <laughs> Fullness, all right? Something that full is full, it's 100% complete, not lacking anything. And it says uh, specifically for God in all his fullness. Don't think this is just some weak representation of God or, or just someone who's, you know, God is, is indwelling for a moment. But no, the fullness of God, not lacking any portion of God, was pleased to live in Christ. That, that these are the concepts when people are like, how do you get to Jesus being God? If you read scripture and you trust that God has preserved that, and, there, and, there, and that's a whole other beautiful, encouraging journey of its own, how do you not come to this conclusion? Because this is just one passage we're looking at, and, we'll, and this is found throughout uh, the New Testament. And so, uh, verse 20, And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And that is the picture. And that's part of maybe the confusion that we get, that God did this incredible thing. Instead of all humanity, all different roads of trying to get to God is like, here's my effort, here's my system to try to earn my way up to God, and hopefully in eternity I'll, I'll wind up in a pretty good level. And that's basically religion. And, and God did something radical that we would have never thought. He put on human flesh and came down to us and did what was necessary here so that we could have this relationship that we were created to have with him restored for all of eternity. And so what God says here, and this is the important thing I think in this passage, is that it's past tense and it's complete. That God has done this. Here's what God has done through Jesus. He's reconciled all, right, everything to himself, and he's made peace with everything in heaven. The job of reconciliation and being right with God is done and finished through the blood of Christ. That's what this passage says. Religion and even taking Christianity and turning it into a religious system which kind of just doesn't even make it Christianity anymore, what it does is it doesn't recognize that, that God has completed the work of reconciliation. God has completed everything that's necessary. But what does the Bible call us to do? 
be reconciled. God's done all the work. And then he offers an invitation to accept it. He's done it all. If we think any effort is needed to add to what God has done to be right with him, we're outside of the realm of Christianity and the good news. And, and that's, that's why Paul is so big on this and, and wants us to understand what's, what's happened. Um, verse 21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. That's kind of mean. Look at me all pointing at you. Well, you too, I'm speaking to myself. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are God's enemy. You're evil. Okay, that's really, wait, wait, hold on. Wait, wait a minute. Some of you guys took too, way too much joy in that. And you have to get this next part or else that's a really bad place to leave you. Because in verse 22, it says, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So turn to your neighbor and say, sorry. <laughs> if you're in Christ, the description that you get, and this isn't qualified, this isn't earning, like you're kind of on this track to get there, you are now. If you've trusted Jesus and accepted this, you are holy, you are blameless, you are without a single fault. And for any believer to live in any reality or, or, or thinking that is, is different from that will lead you into a religious mentality, will lead you into lack of peace in your life, lack of joy in your life. And, and Paul will go on to say that you can have assurance. Why can we have assurance? Because Jesus is big. He's great. He's God. He did everything necessary. But don't I have to do something? No, nope. Jesus did it all. And so um, it goes on uh, in verse 23 to say, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. So he's saying you have this assurance that Jesus did it all, and he's huge. That's why he sets it up, saying it's God, because we're like, how could, that, how could that be enough forgiveness? Just what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a cross? Like, that makes me right with God? Oh, it was God himself. Such a worthy, the only worthy sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. Okay, that is just, and we, we serve a just God. Um, but he says, continue to believe this truth. And what he's saying is he's addressing the situation that's happening in the church. That he's brokenhearted. You knew the truth. You knew the gospel. And you've got people from the outside or maybe even from within trying to get you on another path. And man, we just, some for some weird way, uh, Pastor Nate said this, says this all the time, we love religion. And we just want to like lean into religion and we just drift that way because it's hard for us to really fully grasp that Jesus does it all. Um, and so, so he's just warning people, don't get away from the good news. 
When people say, I've got a better version, it's not. It's horrible. It's awful. It's false. It nullifies the gospel. And so uh, he says, the good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And he's kind of saying, hey, in the very beginning, last week we looked at how he said, by God's will, I'm an apostle. And, and what that means in the background of that, the authority and how God is using him to proclaim this truth and to help believers not get strayed off of something else. Um, and so here's the picture that I get when people stray off and go, well, yeah, it's Jesus and he's awesome and he did a lot, but I still got to kick in a lot. And the picture I get of salvation is like us dead in the water. It says that we're spiritually dead and we're like floating belly up in the ocean, dead. And God comes along, pretty picture, right? God comes along in his like perfect, fancy, beautiful yacht that goes 500 knots a second mile. I don't know nautical terms, okay? And he comes along and he rescues, he resuscitates us, gives us new life and, and uh, rescues us and, and, and uh, revives us and brings us on his beautiful, perfect yacht and um, we're saved, right? Yay, awesome, and we have new life. And, and yet, as we're journeying along with God, we're like, oh, man, God needs help. And so we're like, man, this poor God, and we're like looking for a paddle, going, man, I got to help him, like, I got to help him row this, this boat. Or, or, or even more so, maybe we're jumping back into the water, and we're like, holding on to the boat, and we're, like, kicking, you know, going, hey, it's okay. I, I know I got to, like, help, help me be in this position of, okay, so illustrations break down at some point, but that's a picture I get in my head of, like, just the ridiculousness, you know. Maybe think of a cruise ship, and you're like, I got to help this poor cruise ship, and you're grab, grabbing the world's longest paddle, I guess it would be, Right? Um, you know, and, and, and that's what religion is, thinking that somehow we contribute to being made right with God. And, and that's, that's bondage, and that's just nullifying. And what is the point of Jesus coming and doing what he did? If there was any other way, and I love that, we get this picture of Jesus in the garden, and, and he is praying, going, Okay, I'm about to go to the cross. And as he's following the will of God the Father, he is praying. What does he pray? God, if there's any other way, let's, let's choose that way. <laughs> but what happens? He goes on to the cross because there is no other way. Um, verse 24 says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm participating in the suffering of Christ that continue for his body, the church. And so Paul does an interesting kind of turn. And I, and I think if you think Paul's this, this guy who, who really systematically thinks through the process and the, the information that he's giving, and I'm thinking he's giving this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, big, big, big. And man, he has done the work needed for us to be right with God. And then he's probably thinking of people who are like, my life stinks right now. And I'm going through heartache and pain and struggle and tough things. How could Jesus be that big? How could God be that much in control? Why would God allow this? And so Paul reflects in his own life. You know where he's writing this letter from? Prison. 
He's in prison writing this letter. At this point in his life, he has gone through being uh, attempted to be killed. He was stoned. And when they stoned you, it wasn't like a light punishment. (laughs) The reason they would stone you is to kill you. And they were good at it. And he was stoned, and somehow he survived it. Some people think that God miraculously, like, did another resurrection there or something in, in Paul. And, and he was shipwrecked, and he was, uh, you know, thrown in front of uh, the Jewish leaders, and he was beaten and whipped and all these things. He was bitten by a poisonous snake, and all, all these crazy things that happened to him. He knows suffering. And so he says, but here's the thing. And I know we can't get our brain around God and how big he is, but we have a God that's so big, so in control, that he uses all of our suffering. And and we can't see, you know, it's hard when we're just seeing and staring at suffering in the face, and we can't see the bigger picture of how God might use that. But Paul says, I know he uses it, and so when I suffer, I know that God promises. I trust him because he's big, and he's going to use it in a big way. And the biggest, greatest picture that we get that actually answers that and gives us a picture is Jesus' suffering. I mean, what he goes through, of course, on the cross is like, why? Why, God, aren't you in control? And then on this side of the cross, we go, praise God, you're in complete control. Thank you for doing that. And so he, he addresses the pain and suffering he goes through. And then in verse 25, he says, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. Verse 26, this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. When we talk about, and and some people would go into that mode of, and and that was part of the false teaching that Paul was addressing, was people going, ooh, to really get close to God, to be right with God, you have to know the secret knowledge and secret information and secret way of doing things and secret ways to please him. And and that's not the God that we, we have a God that reveals his truth. And even in the Old Testament, he's revealing that he has a plan and a savior and a Messiah, so much so that there was great anticipation by his people. And then he says, but now it's been fully revealed. And here's God's will and plan and secret. It's not secret anymore. It's Jesus. That's his plan. That's his will. That's what he's doing. And it's not just for the Jewish people. As for centuries and thousands of years, they, they... saw that, okay, God's working, and it's through our people, and that's, that's his whole plan. Even though all the way back in Abraham, uh, God said, hey, I'm gonna, you're going to be a blessing to all people, even Utahns. And, and he didn't say that specifically, but all people, I think, were included in that, right? And, and the big revelation to, to a group, people group that God had, had revealed himself through for thousands of years, it was hard for them to understand Oh, this big will of God through Jesus, that's for everyone. It's for everyone. So we see that theme again and again, that it's for all people. And I think real specifically, I mean, you might think, well, good, I'm a Gentile. We probably have very few people with with Jewish backgrounds here. I know some actually here that that do have some uh, Jewish heritage. But, um, But some of you might say, well, is salvation for me? I've really messed up big in my life. I've done horrible things. Uh, if you knew Pastor Ben, you'd, you'd be shocked. And, and the, the message is that Christ, again, don't make Jesus so small that you think, well, Jesus is a savior for people 
who aren't as bad as me. <laughs> nope. Jesus is hanging on a cross, hanging by people who are, what, sentenced to death, and he's offering salvation to them. And they're receiving salvation by simply trusting in him and going, well, I believe who you say you are. And Jesus is like, all right, you and me. In heaven today, we'll be hanging out. Just simple faith, and it's for everybody. Paul, the guy writing this, what did he do? What was his, his previous, um, you know, part-time or side gig, side hustle he had going on besides being a Pharisee? Killing Christians. <laughs> that was his side hustle, all right? Nobody's excluded from the grace of Jesus. It doesn't matter what's in your past. And, and, and uh, Jesus, if you think that's the case, get a bigger Jesus. Um, so he goes on to say, verse 27, to wrap it up, for God wanted them to know the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too, not just the Jewish people, both. And this is the secret. And this is what it all culminates. Big, big, big Jesus, he lives in you. Christ lives in you. So what does that say about you? What does that say about your identity? I'm perfect. I'm blameless. I'm holy. I'm righteous. Not my own perfection, not my own righteousness, not my own, but, but the, the perfect perfection and righteousness and goodness of Jesus has been gifted to me. That's what the Christian message is. Um, and so he makes that big point. And then he says, this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Once you know this truth, what is the, the response? Some people would say, man, this crazy total grace message that, that churches would preach and share like some crazy church like Lifestone, I mean, that's dangerous. Because if it's all grace and we don't do anything to be right with God, party. Like, let's just go do whatever we want, Right? But, but that's not what happens. Grace changes our hearts. Before I knew Jesus, it was Ben, Ben, Ben. Me, me, me. My desires, my desires, what I want in life. I encountered this big, big, big Jesus. And he came and dwelled in me and changed my heart. And changed my attitude and changed my thinking and changed my everything. And, and it's not based on me doing those things and having that attitude or living that way so I'm good with God, but in a response to God making me good with him. And so uh, the last verse I want to share with you is 28. He goes on to just share this calling and this response. So we tell others about Christ. If you know Christ, how many people are we surrounded by and how many people you just know in your family who they know Jesus who doesn't know Jesus? You know, hey, have you ever heard of this Jesus guy? I doubt you could find many people. But who knows who he really is? So many people I know have a completely distorted, smally version, that's weird, of Jesus. And, and, and to know who Jesus really is. So we tell other people about Christ, warning everybody and teaching everyone with all wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in the relationship to Christ. That's, uh, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. So that's Paul's response, is that he knows he's not saved by any effort or work he does, but what has happened in him 
compels him to know that he exists and his whole life is about proclaiming Christ and sharing that with other people. 